Good afternoon, Grace. Before we uh, jump into our series today, I just want to show off our new shirts for a series, Wise Up. We'll be kicking this off uh, the first weekend of September, as Eddie mentioned, with our small groups and everything. Next week, the t-shirts will go on sale. They just came in this past week, so we have a couple different colors that are available for you. They'll be $10 a piece if you want to get one, or two for 25 so you can get that stuff. Yeah. You guys weren't quite as quick as the first two services. You, you guys are right on top of that stuff, but I caught you. Anyways, they'll be available, but let me tell you, if you're new with us and, and don't know about the series, this is going to be a, a vital series. I believe it's going to be one of the better ones that we've done in a while because of the topic being extremely important uh, and such an issue that's so pertinent to our culture nowadays. It's going to deal with two main issues, that's sex and money and how it affects our relationships. And we're going to be in the books, uh, the wisdom books of the Old Testament, which are books that were specifically written to help us live skillfully on this earth. And if there's two areas where we as a culture and we as people have not lived skillfully, it's in those two areas. And, and most of you can probably look back in your past and see the damage and harm in your life because you haven't handled the gift of sex well and you haven't handled the resources that God's given you well and it's caused problems in your life rather than been the blessing that God intended. So we're going to look at uh, three different wisdom books. One of them's called the Song of Solomon, which probably you've never read before. Uh, because it's not often talked about. It's a whole book in the Bible where God's talking specifically about the sexual aspect of a relationship and what goes into it. And you're going to be shocked at times that you're reading the Bible as we go through it because God's the one that invented sex and he knows how to help us enjoy it the best and he talks about it in the Bible and we're going to talk about it as well. So we want to help you with that whether you're married or not married. We're going to help you see the principles in there and how they apply to your lives so you can enjoy the gift that God designed for you to enjoy in its proper manner. And then money as well is talked about in the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're going to be looking at those three wisdom books that teach us how to live skillfully as a followers of God while we're here on the earth. So our small groups will address that as well. Uh, we want to encourage you to get involved in one. It'll help you take the principles we learn on Sunday and put them into practice and, and pray for one another and help each other along that journey. I also want to just let you know that even though the, uh, the topic of sex will be a big part of it, it's not a series that's just for married people. Uh, it's going to be presented in a way where if you're single, uh, you can learn tremendously from every one of the messages that we go through on how you can prepare for that time and things you can be doing now to set yourself up to enjoy that gift uh, when the time comes. And as, as many of your parents may be able to tell you, uh, the mistakes that they made in their life, as I made in my life, they would have wished that someone came alongside them and taught them about this gift, how to use it wisely so that it wasn't a damaging or hurtful thing in their life but a helpful one. Uh, so we're going to talk to you as well. We'll talk to young people, as young as you want to bring them in here. I'm comfortable with it, even though we'll be talking about uh, some mature uh, subjects. They're from God's perspective, and they're things that the younger generation needs to know. So even you as parents, you can walk out of this series with some skills on how to talk to your kids about sex 
uh, in an appropriate way, maybe in a way that none of your parents ever did in your own life. And it'll be life-changing for you because, uh, let's face it, a lot of us older generation, we've made some mistakes already that you can't go back and erase. But we can prepare this next generation to have a view of their sexuality and sex and money that's different than ours and better than ours was at that age and avoid a lot of the painful mistakes that we've made uh, because we didn't have that. So I want to encourage you. It's going to be a life-changing series and and, uh, one you're not going to want to miss. So sign up, get involved, grab a t-shirt. That's all I have to say. All right, we're in the midst of a series titled Timeline. Uh, If you're new with us, we've been looking at two key passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Daniel chapter 9 we've spent the last few weeks on, and Daniel 9 is a passage that uh, reveals a big picture, kind of what we call a 40,000 foot view of prophecy as specifically as it's laid out for the people of Israel. Daniel was an Israelite, he was a prophet in Israel, and they were in exile at that time out of their land, and he was wondering, is God ever going to fulfill the promises that he made to Israel when they're trapped in this uh, other land and wondering when they're going to go back? And so God revealed this uh, prophecy to him through Gabriel, and we talked about that the last three weeks. Now we're going to jump into a New Testament passage in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus is talking to his disciples about some end times things as well. And he's revealing some of them to him, and it's really what you might say is a, a, an expansion of what Daniel talked about. Jesus is talking to his Jewish disciples, and he's helping them understand uh, what's going to happen uh, for the Jewish people going into the future and end times events and when he's returning and he's expounding on some of what Daniel said and putting some more details in. So today we're going to cover the first half of it. Next week we'll cover the second half of Matthew 24 uh, and then we'll be done with this series as we kick off our fall series. If you have a Bible with you, open it up to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. If you're new with us or you're new to the Bible, that's great. Uh, We have some Bibles in the chairs in front of you. If you reach underneath there, you'll have a hardcover Bible there. And if you open that up to page 829, 829, that Bible will take you to the passage we're going to be in today in Matthew 24. I'd encourage you, even though we're going to put a lot of the verses up on the screen, uh, I'm going to have you mark and and indicate some. It'll be more helpful if you have it right in front of you. That way you're able to go back to it and look at it yourself uh, later on and and circle and mark these things in here because we're going to walk through this Uh, very slowly, uh, picking apart every little piece that's there so we can understand what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in, and I'm going to give you a big picture of what was going on and what do we we really need to learn from this passage. So we don't get lost in the details. I want you to see Jesus' big picture uh, before we jump into the passage. Father God, we're thankful for the privilege we have as your people to gather as we do, and to worship you, to celebrate you, and to open your word uh, so that it can open our hearts and our minds to uh, the truth of who you are and and who you created us to be. So Lord, my prayer, uh, again, is that as we open up your word, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds as your church to know you, to trust you, and to follow you. Lord, help us to understand these truths so that we might respond in the way that Jesus called 
that first audience to respond to these truths. And by doing so, um, that we would be a church that reflects your goodness and your glory uh, to the community in which you've placed us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 24. Let me set the context for you so you understand because that's very helpful to understanding what Jesus was saying and, and why it was important or on the disciples' mind here is, is in Jesus' life, this passage, or Matthew 24, fits within the week, he's, his final week of his life. Okay, just a few days before this, Jesus has come in on the triumphal entry. If you remember Palm Sunday, if you ever celebrated those kinds of things, that's already happened. Jesus came in on the donkey, and people were saying, Hosanna, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were hailing him as if he was going to come in as a political king. That's what the Jewish people and the Jew wanted from him. The Jewish leaders had kind of really already rejected him. The religious leaders didn't like him. But the people thought he was going to come in and take over Rome and, and bring about his kingdom. And they were excited about that because they felt like they were under the Roman's thumb. Well, Jesus disappointed them because he wasn't coming to be a king at that moment. And the people were kind of turning away from him. And as he began to teach at this point here, in the, the chapter right before chapter 24, which is chapter 23. You guys are Bible scholars, right? Right before chapter 24 is chapter 23. Good, I'm glad you're with me. And that three things took place that you need to understand to go into this passage. So important we understand what Jesus said in the midst of the context of it. Here's the three things that took place. The first is Jesus condemned the Jewish religious leaders. For a good part of that passage, he's pronouncing woes on the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. He presented himself, he'd fulfilled everything that Scripture said about him as the Messiah, and yet they continued to reject him, to challenge him, and to speak improperly of him. And so at that point, God had given them enough time to turn, they weren't, and Jesus was condemning the Jewish religious leaders. It wasn't the sinners that Jesus had the problem with. It was the religious people who thought they could do it on their own and didn't need a savior. And Jesus makes that known at that point. The second thing he did at the, towards the end of this is he lamented over Jerusalem's, or the Jewish people's, unwillingness to accept her Messiah. Jesus used the words that maybe you've heard. He says, like a hen trying to gather her chicks, so was I to you, Jerusalem, trying to gather those under my wings, that you would accept me, accept the salvation he came, but he said you were unwilling to do so. So Jesus realizes that the end is coming, that his people are going to be judged in that generation, and they've rejected their Savior, the Messiah that God sent for him. And the last thing he does is he pronounces the temple desolate. Meaning even though the temple, the house of God is there, he pronounces it desolate, meaning uh, there's not going to be any God inside there. You're going to go there and worship, but God's presence isn't going to be there. And what's ironic is as Jesus is doing this, he's at the temple, and the scriptures tell us he left the temple, and it was the last time he ever stepped foot inside the temple. So you see he's showing this place is going to be desolate. I'm leaving the temple, and I'm never going to come back to this place again, at least in this generation. And so that's what's happened just prior to chapter 23, or excuse me, chapter 24. Now, we're going to pick it up there, and here's what I want you to see in chapter 24. 
there's going to be three vital commands concerning prophecy in this chapter. We're going to cover two of them today, and the third one we'll cover next week. Three vital commands that Jesus gives in terms of how he wants us to handle or steward the prophecies or truths that he gives us. It's so important that we understand these, because if you get lost in the details of the prophecies and you miss the point of them, you're going to be misled. So I'm going to talk about two of them today. We'll look at the third one next week. Uh, and uh, uh, with these two prophecies or these two commands, there's a confidence that Jesus wants us to have that results from it. So today we're going to see two commands and then a confidence that results, okay? Two commands and a confidence results. So here we are, chapter 24, verse 1. says, Jesus left the temple, so he just condemned the Pharisees. He just lamented over Jerusalem because they wouldn't receive their Messiah. And he just pronounced the temple desolate, saying, it's going to be empty and you're not even going to see me. He's saying this to the Jewish people. You're not even going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, they'd said that once when he came in, but then they rejected him because he didn't come as a political leader. So now he's saying, you're not even going to see me, Jesus, your Messiah again, until these words come out of this nation's mouth again. That's very important because that's not going to happen until a future time that we're going to see later on. Okay, so Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Okay, now picture this. The authors never put information in that isn't important. So why did Matthew include this? Picture the disciples at this point. Okay, they grew up under these religious leaders. That was their church for many, many years before Jesus came on the scene. And if you've read the Gospels, you realize that throughout the Gospels, there's a constant tension going on between Jesus' disciples and the religious leaders. What the religious leaders teach and then what Jesus is teaching. And it's kind of like the whole time they're kind of going, oh man, if, if we don't follow the religious leaders, we're going to be rejected by our own people. If we don't follow Jesus, I mean, this Jesus is unique. This guy is special. He's like nothing we've ever seen. We don't want to dismiss him. But they're constantly in this tension of, of who do we believe in? Who are we going to follow? And even up to his crucifixion where they betrayed Jesus, they don't want to be associated with him, and they kind of start sliding back. So, so imagine what's happening. They've just heard Jesus in one message totally throw their whole religion that they've grown up with under the bus. You've just condemned all the religious leaders. You've just wept over Jerusalem saying, you're unwilling to receive me. And then you've just pronounced our house, our temple, desolate meaning it's, it's worthless. So here's what I imagine they're doing. They're like freaking out because Jesus has just ripped the rug out of everything that they've ever known. And they're clinging to something. So they go, hey, but Jesus, how about the buildings? Yeah, the religious leaders are shot. Jerusalem's shot. The temple's desolate. But, but check out these buildings. I mean, they're clinging to something. Don't we do that? Oh, if I could just get to the church building, then God will hear my prayer. We want to hang on to something oftentimes when we're in desperate times. And so the disciples do that and they say, check these buildings out. These are amazing. They're wanting something significant from their faith. And Jesus answers them in that. He says, you see all these, meaning all these buildings, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus makes a statement that predicts what we read about last week, right? 
the overthrow of Jerusalem and the temple and how the Romans totally destroyed it in A.D. 70. This probably happened in A.D. 31 or 32 or 33, somewhere in that period that Jesus made this statement. And so as they're walking out of Jerusalem and Jesus makes the statement, they move to the Mount of Olives, which is a mountain or a hill near that area. And as he sat, it says on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him, probably after a lot of discussion, saying, what is he just talking about? They privately said, tell us, Jesus, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So if you have a, a, a pencil with you or a pen or something in your Bible, mark these things because this is what Jesus is going to answer. This is the outline for this passage that we're looking at. The disciples said, when? When will these things be? So Jesus is going to answer, when will these things be? Meaning, when does this, the temple be destroyed? When is this event going to happen? And then they ask another question. It's really a twofold question. What will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? Meaning the end of this time. The Jews saw uh, all of time, meaning this present age of how things are right now. And then the next stage, which was the millennial kingdom or the time when Jesus would reign or their king would reign forever. That's how they viewed the world. There was this time, and then there was that time. So they're saying, when does this time come to an end before we are in that period where we have a king ruling forever, okay? So those are the three questions. Jesus is going to answer them all in this passage in reverse order, backwards, with one exception. In the Gospel of Matthew, he doesn't answer the question about the destruction of the temple. He did in this actual event, but if you understand how the Gospels are written, all the Gospels are written uh, to give a different perspective on the person of Jesus and his ministry. Not contrasting, but like different facets of it. Like, like three reporters who maybe go to a sporting event might report that event, but one might focus on the visiting team, one might focus on how the fans were responding, another might just pick a, a perspective of a player. They're all seeing the exact same event, but they're recording certain things. That's why we have multiple Gospels, because they're helping us see Jesus from different perspectives. Jesus answered that question in this actual event, but only Luke recorded it in his gospel. Matthew just records the second two of the sign of the end of the age and the sign of his coming. So that's what we're going to see in this passage. You can go to Luke tw chapter 21 if you want to read about what he said about the temple. So, okay? So here's my first point to you then as we get into this passage is this, is I should learn prophecy so that I won't be led astray by false prophets or alarmed by current events. I should learn prophecy so that I won't be led astray by false prophets or alarmed by current events. Let's look at the scriptures that talk about this, okay? So they ask Jesus' question, these three questions, and Jesus answers them in verse 4. And here's the key things I want you to see. Two commands in this passage. Jesus says this first. See that no one leads you astray. There's this command. Here's the first thing you need to do. If you have a highlighter, this is something you highlight. You want to know why God gives you prophecy? Jesus is telling us right here. Here's the strongest words he uses in this passage. See that no one leads you astray. Why does he reveal these things to us? Because he knows we're prone to being led astray. He also knows there are going to be people that come around that are going to try to lead us astray. And here's what he says. Here's why. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars 
and rumors of wars. Here's a second command right here. See that you are not alarmed. So the first thing is Jesus says, see that you're not led astray because false prophets are going to come. And he says, see that you're not alarmed because current events are going to happen that may cause you to freak out a little bit. So don't be led astray and don't be alarmed, meaning don't respond in, in fear or panic about what's happening. And he tells us why. He says, for this must take place, but the end is what? Not yet. Okay, so there's going to be rumors of wars and wars. So he goes on in verse 7 to say, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Okay, so kind of like when a woman is pregnant, and you can have birth pains almost at any time through a pregnancy. You usually don't have them really early on, but once you get to about the middle part, uh, you can have birth pains even though you're not going to go into labor for several months yet. So Jesus is using an illustration that they would have been familiar with. Hey, just because there's some birth pains, it doesn't mean the baby's coming tomorrow. It's the beginning of that, but it can still be a pretty extended process before those things come. It's just the beginning. And so what he's saying there is here's an important sign of the beginning of birth pains. Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars earlier on. He says, see that you're not alarmed. That has to take place, but the end's not yet. Then he goes on to say what shall happen after that. Nations will rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms and famines and earthquakes. Jesus elevates the language. The first phrase he talks about is just like localized wars. This little group fighting against this group. You're going to hear about that happening in the world. But he said, that's not the end. But when you see nations rising against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms, what the language that Jesus is using there is language that says, when you see multiple groups rising up against other multiple groups and, and large gr areas rising up against other large areas, now you're seeing the beginning of birth pains, he says. It's not the end yet. That's just the birth pains that are leading up to one day being the end. Well, you might say that our World War I and World War II, if you're a history buff, were the first wars that really fulfilled those signs. They were multiple nations against multiple nations. Huge parts of the world. Lots of different countries joined together to do that. Now some people, again, go crazy and start saying, we're in the end times, we're in the end times. That's not what Jesus said. He's saying that's just the birth pains when you start to see this kind of thing happening. Jesus also didn't say when you see the first or second world war, it's there. He just said you're going to see that kind of stuff when you're getting towards that time in our age, okay? That's all he said. So that's what we have to be aware of is, is that we can't be led astray and we can't be alarmed. We need to know these things. Here's what's interesting when you compare this to a lot of modern-day prophets and prophecies. Modern-day prophets, not all of them, there are some good ones out there, modern-day people who, who are good with prophecy, but there is a whole lot of prophets and prophets out there or self-proclaimed prophets that do just the opposite of what Jesus said here. You see what Jesus said? When you see these kind of events, he said, I'm telling you this stuff in advance. Why? So that you won't be alarmed. So that you won't panic, he says. So you won't freak out about what's happening. And yet, when I watch some of these modern-day prophets, you know, you come across them on TV every so often, 
They're doing just the opposite of what Jesus was doing. They're whipping people into some kind of frenzy over their self-proclaimed prophecies, trying to get everyone into a panic or into a big emotional stir, really because they want people to do what they want to do, but not what Jesus wants them to do. Jesus says, I'm telling you these things so that you can be calm even when the world's going haywire. This stuff's going to happen. Move forward with confidence that I'm still in control, even though it looks like this world is going crazy. Very important we understand this, because how you respond to prophecy should be dictated or determined by how Jesus wants us to respond. He's telling us these things so that we stay calm as his people. Much like a parent tells a child when you're going through maybe a rough stage in, in life or, or you're heading to a difficult path on the road or whatever it might be, you're going to tell your kid, hey, hang on here or sit in your seat, strap your seatbelt on. It's going to be a little rough here. You're doing that so they don't freak out, so they stay calm in the midst of it. That's what Jesus wants for us as well, and so we should respond to it in that way. Second thing we see as we move on in this passage to how we play out these passages, it says in verse Nine. Notice the word there. It says then. Then. So circle that. So after these initial things, this is what's going to happen next. After we see some of these larger wars like this, after that, it says then they will deliver you up to tribulation. You, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience here and his disciples and the others that were there. He will dribble, dri- deliver you, you Jewish people, up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then, so after that, then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Okay, so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, after these birth pains, then as we move into it, kind of like labor, it's going to get more difficult. Man, you're going to be delivered up to tribulation. People are going to hate you. You're going to be hated and people are going to fall away. Lawlessness will be increased. Things are going to get worse. But he says in verse 13, in spite of that, he says two things that are very important. He says the one who endures to the end will be saved. He's not talking about spiritual salvation there. He's talking about physical salvation. That's why it's important. We're looking at a physical thing here, so I'll, I'll explain that more later. He says two things that are guaranteed. The one who endures to the end will be saved, meaning, picture this. He's talking about a horrible time, and it's going to go on for a period of time. And he's saying, if you endure to the very end, it's not going to get even worse and like psh, the whole world blows up like some of the movies that we see. He said, if you endure to the end, you're going to be saved to go into something that's going to be totally different, which is the next age. Okay, we'll see that in just a minute. So that's good news. He's saying, even though it gets bad, the one who endures to the end, you're going to be saved. And then the second thing is this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Okay, here's Jesus' general point. Is that I can be confident that God's plan 
will succeed despite difficult times. I can be confident that God's plan will succeed despite difficult times. See, the Jewish people, just like here, just like we saw in Daniel's age, they were concerned. Are we going to be destroyed? Are we going to survive? We've been under the ruling of these Gentile people for so long. What's going to happen? And Jesus is saying, hey, it's going to get worse for you in the end, but it's all right. Those that endure to the end of this period, you're going to be saved. You're going to go into that next age that you long for, that generation will do that. So he's showing that his promises to the Jewish people, they're not going to be destroyed, which would make it impossible for God to fulfill his promises. God is going to fulfill his promises to his people, and he's telling them here, as bad as it gets for you people, he said, you're going to be saved. Some of you are going to go in and experience that kingdom. And God's gospel will reach it. We'll come back to that idea of saved in a minute because we're going to see that again in this passage and it'll help make sense of it. The third thing we see then as we go through here, as bad as it gets, we can be confident that God's plan will come. Now Jesus is going to elaborate. He's just talked about the end here. That was the first sign. These are the signs of the end. Now he's going to go into the signs of his coming that are kind of hand in hand, but they kind of overlap a little bit. So 15 is he's moving on to the second question. So he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. He says that because they should be familiar with Daniel's prophecy. That's what we've looked at the last several weeks. Remember in Daniel's prophecy, there's that point where it says the abomination of desolation or the one who's the abomination in the wing of the, it was that difficult passage to translate that we looked at in light of the rest of scripture. It's that period where when that seven-year period of difficulty and tribulation comes, in the middle of it, the figure called the Antichrist is going to set himself up in the temple. He's going to eliminate, it said, all Jewish worship so they can't worship anymore. He's going to persecute them tremendously, and he's going to tell people to worship him. Okay, that's what Jesus is referring to. He says, when you see that, he's talking to the Jewish people, whoever would be reading it at that time, when you see this person come in and set this up, he says, let the reader understand. He says, then let those who are in Judea, who lives in Judea? Jewish people do, right? Those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He's given them a warning. Those who are believing that Jesus is who he is, he's saying, I'm going to protect you. If you would trust me, when that time comes, you've got to get yourself out of Jerusalem. It is not going to be pretty for you there if you stay there. He says, let the one, and here's the urgency of it. He says, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Now listen to what he says here, real important. And if those days, meaning that, that last half of the tribulation period, if those days had not been cut short, meaning if God had just allowed the world to continue to go on as it would have without his intervention, if he didn't come in and stop it after that time period, if it hadn't been cut short, no human being would be saved. There is that word again. He's not talking about spiritual salvation. 
Because you can read the book of Revelation and see that all kinds of believers in Jesus are martyred for their faith and they're saved. Because you see scenes where God is going to reward them and justify them in his presence because they stuck to his truth. He's talking about physical salvation, meaning if God had let the world and did let the world go on with all of its evil indefinitely and he didn't intervene with his son returning, no one would be saved. We would all destroy each other from the wickedness that exists when God's not present. But he did. He's going to cut it short so that some would be saved. Why? Because he's promised that some will go through that tribulation, that his people will go through it, the Israelite people in particular, and they will experience an earthly kingdom where Jesus reigns as king. Look what he says. But for the sake of the elect, that's a common term for the Jewish people, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, so here he comes back to his warning of why is he giving us these prophecies so we won't be misled. Look what he says. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Why? For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, meaning even the Jewish people and, and Christians that might come to faith during that time. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they walk, say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, meaning the returning Christ. He's in the wilderness. Do not go out there. If they say, look, he's in this inner room, do not believe it. Why? He tells us. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I'll explain that in a minute. Here's my point. Number three is I must be aware that false Christs and false prophets will perform great signs and gather great crowds. That's what Jesus is warning them about. They're going to come. And they're going to increase as the time gets closer and closer to the end. And they're going to heighten their abilities. In fact, Satan, who empowers all these false prophets and false religions, is going to do even more to deceive people. And you're going to see them do incredible miracles, incredible signs. This is why it's so vital, and we talk about this frequently. You, you cannot be a sign chaser. Man, we are so prone to chasing signs and chasing miracles and chasing the next quick fix that you are going to be totally vulnerable to being misled if that's the basis of your religion and your faith. You need to be a God chaser. You need to chase after his word because he has told us what we need to know here. You can't just set this aside and say, God, give me a sign, because the devil is great at doing miracles, and he's great at giving signs to mislead you, even his children, it says here. And that's going to happen in great throngs in that time. And Jesus is telling you and me in advance. He's saying, they're coming, people. And when someone says, hey, hey, the Christ, this guy, he's out here in the wilderness, you know, don't go after him. He says, he's in here in this inner room. He says, don't follow him. Why? Because all kinds of people doing miraculous things are going to be there. He uses an idiom at, at the very end that describes it. Where the corpse is, meaning where there's a dead body, vultures are going to gather. He's talking about the dead faith of these false Christs. 
And where they are, you're going to get vultures, people who pursue and want that death because it it's, it's feeds them. They're going to be all around it. You're going to see them all over. But he's saying, that's not going to be me coming back because he says, the way I'm coming back next time is not the way I came the first time. You see, Jesus came more like what these false people came like here. The first time he came, Jesus came to a nation. He was born in a manger. He hung out in one general location around Jerusalem. His whole ministry barely spanned much more than about 25 miles in his lifetime. And so people had to say, hey, we've seen the Messiah. You see it all over. Come and meet him. Come and see him. And, and they had to come to that place to see this Jesus perform the miracles he did, fulfilling Scripture. But Jesus is saying, if people start saying the same thing in the end times, they're false. Because I'm not coming back this next time the way I came the first time. And then he gives us the sign of his second coming. He said, when I come again, just like the lightning that flashes in the east and is seen all the way to the west, he said, you are not going to miss it. I'm not coming up from the earth. I'm coming from the heavens. And every single person that knows how I'm coming will be able to identify it. Church, he's telling you and me how he's coming so that we can know when it happens, that we're not deceived. Next thing we see is he says in verse 29, he fleshes that out even more. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. That's the sign that we just talked about, that he described. That it'll flash, whatever it is, you'll see it from east to west. Everyone will be a see it. He says, that's when it's going to appear. After the sun is darkened, the moon not, is not given its light, the stars fall from heaven, powers of the heavens will be shaken. Let, let me just give you a, a real small hint, okay? This is really deep. I think... We're going to know when this happens. I'm just guessing sun not shining, moon not shining, things are shaking. I don't think we're going to miss it. The key is you don't get sucked up into something that's not this beforehand. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't buy into these guys that try to say that they're me and they're doing these things before these things happen. He has told us what it's going to look like. He says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from end of heaven, from one end of heaven to the other. Meaning, from everywhere, he's going to gather his people together at that time. Here's my fourth point for you here. It says, when Christ returns to the earth, it will be miraculously visible in the sky and impactful on the earth. That's what Jesus says to them here in a nutshell. It's going to be miraculously visible. So don't look for people who are him here on the earth because when he comes, you can't miss it. So just keep saying, if someone says, I think I've seen the new Messiah or, or this guy's an amazing, he's doing miracles. Hey, it's not him. It's not the return of Christ. It's not the way it's going to happen. You can know just like that and not be deceived by these people that are going to come in throngs when this time 
comes, and they're even beginning to come now. The second thing you're going to see is it's going to be hugely impactful on the earth. All the people are going to be gathered together at that point. The other thing is he says, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Here's my interpretation of that. Okay, I'm not going to bank my salvation on this, but I think this is the best interpretation of it. Different people interpret it differently, so it's not that important, but I'm going to tell you what I think we should see here because of what it says. It says all the tribes of the earth. Matthew, when he wrote this, did not use a word that says nations. He could have chosen a word that meant all the Gentile nations or other people. I think he chose tribes because he's referring to a prophecy in Zechariah that talks about what's going to happen to the Jewish people when they see Jesus come physically the second time. It's going to be very different than how he came and how they responded the first time. So let's look at Zechariah, and I'll tell you why I believe the tribes here refer specifically to the Jewish people on the earth at that time and how they're going to respond with mourning when they see the Son of Man coming. So Zechariah chapter 12, if you turn there, uh, it'll come up on the screen, but you can mark it in your notes if you want. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says this. And this is Zechariah, or God prophesying through Zechariah of this coming age that they were aware of. They knew that there was a present age and there was a coming age that was going to be a, a great time of God and his people. And this is what he said. He said, I will pour out on the house of David. This is God speaking through Zechariah. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of of grace and pleas for mercy. So this is a positive thing. God's pouring out a grace on them and a plea for mercy. Okay, that's a good thing because repentance leads to salvation. Okay, so that's what he's talking about in this day. And here's what's going to happen. So that when they look on me, who's me? Well, let's see. On him whom they have pierced, who would that be? Jesus. Okay, their Messiah. When they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plains of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, the family of the house of Nathan by itself. The family of the house of Levi, by itself. What's he doing? He's going through each family or each tribe of Israel, showing how, how complete that day is going to be, where every tribe, every Jewish person at that time is going to go through such a powerful sense of repentance over their Messiah that they'd rejected for so long that it's going to turn the whole nation back to him because of this grace that God pours out on his people who have rejected their Messiah for thousands of years now. It's going to be an amazing sight to see. And that's what's going to usher in this period of Jesus reigning over them here on earth in that day. Look at what chapter 13, verse 1 says. And on that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David. That's the Jewish people. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that's the place, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And that's exactly what Daniel said when we studied Daniel 9, was one of the purposes of God's prophecy, to make a righteous people for himself. And here he's carrying it out through all these things, and Jesus is telling us how it's going to come about. Lastly, 
Jesus ends with a little parable, this first section, and we'll look into the last warning next week. He says in verse 32, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. What he's saying, he's using a a common imagery that we all know, that at certain times when plants start to bud, you know, oh, spring's coming, summer's coming sometime soon. We don't know necessarily the exact day. I mean, we, we can't put it on a calendar here, but, but you don't know exactly when it's all going to happen, but you know it's coming near. Jesus is using that imagery. He says, so also, when you see all these things, all what things? All these things that we've just talked about. When you see all these things, you know that he is near. He doesn't say when you see one of these things. He doesn't say when you see the first thing. He says when you see all of them. Got it? Okay, so when people start saying, oh, we've had world wars, Jesus is right here. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. We're early spring. Maybe we're late winter. We've got to see all these things before what Jesus says is true. I'm at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation, what generation? The generation that sees all these things. He said, truly, this generation, the generation that sees all these things, will not pass away until all these things take place. Meaning if they see all these signs, then everything that he talks about, they'll see. They're going to see him come. Basically what Jesus is saying is the generation that witnesses every single one of these things will be the generation that sees Jesus come physically to earth. People, this isn't a passage that Jesus is giving us to freak people out with. It's a passage of encouragement to his people. Think about it. The people that see all these things, you don't want to be part of that. I hope I'm not around when these things happen. It's going to be brutal for Jewish people and for anyone that associates with Jesus at all. But Jesus is giving them encouragement. He's saying, hey, if you're living in these times, and it's going to be the worst times that this world has ever seen. He's, he's encouraging them, saying, take heart, because you are going to be the generation that gets to see me come physically in my glory. It's like a coach that's encouraging his team when they're in the toughest game they've ever played and they're just beaten up and they're bruised and they're saying, oh, we want to quit, coach. And he's saying, you guys, stick it out. We are two minutes from this game coming to a close and we are in the lead by one point. Don't quit. It's going to happen so close. That's what Jesus is doing with his children. He's saying, man, I know it's hard. But if you see these things, if you're living then, hang on, because I'm coming, and I'm coming soon. He says, this generation, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Meaning, he says what he means, and it's going to happen. Let me just close with this thought. No one presents a better example of how to respond to prophecy than Jesus did. And Jesus isn't sitting here telling us to not be misled and don't panic when he's unwilling to do so himself. He's not saying, hey, you're going to go through some difficult times. Just chill out. And we're going, yeah, great, Jesus. I mean, you're up in heaven. It's really nice up here, but we're down here walking through this. That's not the Jesus that we worship. You see, Jesus is not only the one who tells us these prophecies, he is the one who fulfilled them 
for us and models for us what it looks like for a follower of God to walk through these things. Think about Jesus' life. Jesus, from eternity past, has been in heaven. And he came to earth. He took on human flesh to fulfill prophecies that had been spoken about him. And do you know what some of those prophecies are? Let me just tell you one of them. Before Jesus ever came from heaven down to earth, Isaiah 53 was prophesied about him. That he would be beaten. He would be mocked. That he would be killed and persecuted for your transgressions and for mine. Not for his own. I mean, we feel bad when we get caught doing something wrong and we get a ticket because we've been speeding and we go, oh man, that stung. But what if you got a ticket every time someone else sped? How ticked off would you be then? What if you knew every time you got on 35, you were going to take the tickets of every single person that got a ticket that day? You wouldn't go on to I-35 anymore. Jesus knew that every single sin that you and I committed were going to be piled onto him when he came. That's what was prophesied. He had to fulfill it. But you know what? He didn't panic like we often do. Jesus didn't come down and immediately start a campaign to end crucifixion and the cruel ways in which the Roman government were killing people at that time because he knew he was going to have to go through it. Jesus didn't say, let's pass some laws that make a higher court to oversee the decisions that Pilate makes so that when they try me unfairly at night against Roman law, there's another court that I can appeal to so that my case can truly be heard. Jesus didn't say, as soon as he was in there, rally all of his disciples and say, would you guys make some picket signs and go outside Pilate's house and say, separation of church and state. Because Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what had to happen. He wasn't alarmed. And he walked with a confidence that so outshined this world through the most difficult time he ever faced in his life. Jesus isn't just telling us not to be alarmed when things get difficult here on this earth. He modeled it for us in spades. And talk about not being deceived Jesus knew God's plan well enough. He knew that God's prophecies well enough that it kept him from being deceived because he was tempted just like you and I are. He was tempted to be comfortable rather than obedient. And when the devil himself tempted him in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, he used the very words of God. The devil quoted scripture to try to deceive Jesus, but he twisted it out of context. And one of the things that the devil tried to twist was that he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of this earth and he said these kingdoms can all be yours because he knew they were going to all be Jesus's. Jesus knew they were going to be his but the devil had a different way for him to get them. He said you can have them right now. You just bow down and worship me. And that was probably really tempting to Jesus because he knew to get the kingdoms the way his father said he needed to get them he was going to have to lay down his life in a brutal way. He could have had him right there really easy and been very comfortable. He could have been deceived by a false prophet, the devil, if he didn't know God's plan for the future. But Jesus understood, if I buy that truth, then the only person going into that kingdom is me, under the devil. The only way he could take you and me into that same kingdom 
was to lay down his life for your sin and for mine. To live a perfect life for your sake and for mine. The only way Jesus was going to receive the kingdom that God had prophesied for him and told us about was for him to follow the path that God had given to him. And if Jesus didn't know that prophetic path, he could have very easily been deceived like you and I are. So let me ask you, have you taken the time to humbly learn and understand God's basic prophetic plan as he reveals it so that you are not easily deceived? And just as importantly, are you aware that things in this world will not get better before they get worse? so that you don't have to panic, so that you don't have to freak out, so that we as Christians in particular don't have to run and spend all our energies on all kinds of strange things that aren't really carrying God's kingdom forward. The devil would love to get us into a panic because then we get focused on all kinds of things that we can't change instead of doing the things that God's called us to do, being an example of him in a world that knows nothing about him. Imagine a church where its people could look past the difficult times that they're in and not so seek to be comfortable all the time, but seek to be faithful. Not panic about the challenges that we face in this world, but realizing this, that the darker this world gets, the brighter the church is going to shine. What if we were more focused about how we are shining and less concerned about how dark the world is getting? Because it's going to get darker. The question is, are we going to still be shining when it does so that those who are looking for the light know how to find it? My prayer is that we would be a church that's not alarmed when our government passes laws that are so against what God wants, that freaks out when our city does things that aren't good for everyone. I'm not saying we don't resist and, and move into that, but we stay focused on who we are as a church and what we are called to do as a people. And we trust what God has for us in the future. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you, we thank you for these truths and how important they are in our lives. May they sink deeply into our hearts that we might know you more deeply and trust you more fully. You are so good to reveal these things to us in advance so that just as you said, Jesus, we don't have to panic, we don't have to be overly alarmed, we don't have to freak out as if the, the world is just going crazy and out of control and you don't know what you're doing, but rather we can walk through this world with a settled confidence that just causes other people to go, why are you so different? How can you move forward with a confidence that is inconsistent with the craziness of this world? And then we can tell them because we know the one who holds the plans for this world in his hand.
we're thankful for that. And we praise you that you shared those things with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.